Hi, I'm Lanise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well-being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Sarah Greenidge. After working in healthcare regulation and communications for some years, she decided to broaden her horizons and started consulting for consumer health and wellness brands. Coming from such a regulated healthcare space, where evidence-based information is king, she was concerned about the quality of consumer content in wellness and that brand partnerships were largely based on popularity and not necessarily expertise. After raising these issues to a few people working in the industry, she was met with a response that the industry was different and doesn't need to be strict with what they say. It was here that the mission to tackle this mindset was conceived, and a year later, Sarah started The Well-Spoken Mark. Welcome to the show. Let's start off by getting into the story of your first period. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so I was 11 years old, and I remember... um, coming downstairs of my parents' house, I have this very vivid memory, and going into their conservatory, it's very specific, (laughs) I remember this, and I remember um, feeling something in my underwear and being really shocked when I looked and saw that there was blood. And it was a real distinct memory for me um, because I was kind of really overwhelmed. (laughs) I remember just kind of doing nothing for a couple of hours before then I told my mum what had happened um and it was an interesting when I saw the question in terms of thinking back trying to unpick what that 11 year old Sarah was thinking um and I think it was a mixture of shock and interestingly for me somehow shame interestingly um which is why I didn't say straight away and I've been trying to think about why that was I can't I can't piece together that 11 year old mind now because I feel obviously so differently um but that was kind of an important part of not saying how long did you wait until you told your parents it was a couple of hours definitely yeah um and uh, my mum was completely normal (laughs) and like (laughs) dealt with it beautifully that was a real internalized feeling because it it didn't match my mum's response if that makes sense um but that's that to me is really interesting that that is something that I I had a view of that for some reason at 11 years old. Yeah, which is sad, actually, when you think about it. Do you, thinking back on this feeling of shame right now, do you think that it was because of the way that periods had been spoken about at the time, things you had heard at school? Yeah, I think definitely so. And I think... Um, at the time, um, girl, the girls were starting to get their periods at school. And for some reason, um, it was talked about very negatively within those, that, that kind of, so I, that would have been, um, I would have been year seven, actually, when that happened, which is the first year of, I don't know if it's middle school or high school or wherever you're based. Um, and yeah, it, it, at the time, 
socially for that, that group of 11 year olds it was it was talked about very negatively and I remember specifically hearing about another little girl who um had her period already and I remember being going on a um a school trip an overnight stay and this girl very just normally sharing um that she had started her period quite early in, in what I had thought was early as a um, 11 year old I think she was nine or ten or something and the reaction of the girls in the room was really kind of one of almost shock and horror <laughs> and that really stuck with me um, then when that happened to me I think and it's interesting even thinking about that because I haven't thought about that for 20 years <laughs> <laughs> but yeah actually that was it was really interesting it was this how in that little baby kid society it was seen as very negative and I think maybe dirty I think um, without saying those words because you don't have that language at 11 Mm. but that was the the kind of sense. Thinking about it now how long did it take you to move past this feeling or on the other side have you moved past that feeling? Do you know actually I think I moved past that by the time I was probably 13 or 14 and the reason is is that at that point probably a lot of the the majority of the young women I was around at that time had had started their periods and then the stigma just because everyone had it dissipated if that makes sense it it, Mm. there was no longer this it was just a normal part of our our lives it wasn't something that we spoke about um but it you know it, it no longer had that sort of reaction um and then you know and then and then uh, uh, then onwards it was spoken about quite freely because people would use that to get out of swimming and and PE class and then it actually <laughs> it became this empowered thing <laughs> that we used to like can't miss possibly can't do this because of my period so it's in, it's interesting that in two to three years how the transition happened um where I the society I was in or the, where mm. I was living so going from being the shock and horror to being this empowerment and using it as a, <laughs> as a tool to manipulate teachers. <laughs> and, and then there was no problem talking about it whatsoever, you know, it, it, and, and that's, I've never really thought about that, but there, there must have been a transition in those three to, three to four years. Um, Cause I was still in the schooling system at that point. Right. And the girls were talking about it so freely. What about the education in the school around it? I don't remember really anything particularly. I'm sh- there must have been, but I have no memory whatsoever outside of maybe when I got a bit older. I, I, the first time I remember really talking about periods, maybe I was in primary school, but it was all very kind of... And, you know anatomical and I didn't really understand I think at that point and then the next time I really probably kind of got education about the reproductive system um I was in I was in college I was in A-level biology probably and I didn't I didn't and that's because I took that course but I don't remember even in um we had a thing called PSHE I don't know if it exists anymore it's kind of like your social class of like culture and what happens in the world and often they talk to you about sex at that point. And I remember more distinctly it being about sex safety and safe sex than, than about 
biological function function of your body it, 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 it there was never really that focus um so I did a lot of learning much after so your own personal learning yeah and even thinking about my I don't even really remember much family learning either um and I'm, I don't want the thing is I, I don't have memory of it it doesn't mean it didn't happen but it obviously wasn't enough for me to, to stick into my if my memory I think it was brief and fast you know mm. um, <laughs> um so I think that's interesting and then I did my own learning you know kind of 16 up and so how did you learn internet books internet internet um, at that point this is when you could you could get on to this was not to show my age but this was the start of when you could get internet on your phones it was the first time (laughs) (laughs) and it was slow um and like just going on the the computer and like looking and what triggered me to look actually was I used to get and still do sometimes but nowhere near as as much when I was in my teens and early 20s really bad headaches around my my period time and because I had I didn't have cramps so much it was the headaches before I would come on to my period and because I found those so debilitating debilitating and then it could trigger a migraine I was seeking solutions because of that in which I then did more learning about periods and your reproductive cycle if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, but it actually wasn't because I was looking for information. It's because I had a symptom that I needed to kind of get under control or think about how I could manage it. Um, I was looking for like ways to stop your headache, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And that's what prompted the learning. So what did you end up do to, to stop the headaches? It was a lot of trial and error. Um, I did every kind of, changing foods and diets that you think of um I then where I kind of started to talk more to my family is actually what I found out was that um that was something that on my mother's side everyone had from mother to grandmother to really bad headaches um and so whether there's a familial link of perhaps that's something how our bodies respond or to the hormone change Mm -hmm. um uh, and it made me kind of understand a bit more about what happens before your period, if that makes sense, in that phase. Mm, yeah. um, and trying to manage those hormones, trying to get more sleep. Um, and, you know, it, it was kind of lifestyle changes that I did. Um, yeah. to try and, and to be honest, I'm going to be honest, I did a lot of stuff in my uh, late teens, early 20s. And not much worse <laughs> it was a real it was a real combination and then as I started to get older that started to go away um which my mum told me it would um she said that that was a something that happened to all of them from their teenagers to their kind of early 20s and then it shifts you kind of I guess your body goes through like a shift um in terms of how it manages the hormones so yeah that 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 was how it I kind of managed it but I still do get that sometimes now um and it's very stress related and it's very sleep related for me. How has it been in the last three months? To be honest, I've had so I also on top of that the on top of the um complication, depending on where I ovulate what side, what I've noticed to really get to track, I either get depending on the side I get quite bad cramps or and no headache. 
or on the other side I get not very many cramps and headaches um and it's it, it will alternate the month for me actually on what symptoms I get um and it took a long time tracking that and I think over the last um three months I've had pretty uh bar the last one I had pretty bad periods um in terms of quite a shift from my norm mm. in terms of s- symptoms there's a couple of things that I know for sure is uh one I think just a lot of heightened stress yeah I think with just this lockdown and all that kind of stuff and um I found that I'm working a lot and not able to switch off because I'm working at home you know you like you don't turn off yeah so it's like a heightened level of stress all the time um what I have done is uh and also bad sleeping also super bad sleeping and that has had an effect what I've really done over the last month when I thought I need to get a grip on this because um my headaches can last two three days um is I've upped my exercise quite substantially and dropped a, a lot of sugar from my diet, which I what I realised is in tandem with lockdown, I start to eat badly. You know, it's, it's it it compounds. Yeah. Um, and then it has an effect. And then my last period was much better um, because of like taking quite proactive action and sleep. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the real trigger for me, really. And it's been interesting. I've been relatively okay. I would get the odds bad period here and there but I could track you I could tell you why that was you know normally I could say I had a terrible week of sleep I was just super stressed or I ate really badly that month I could you know really pin it down um so I think lockdown has a lot to do with it it's interesting that you were able to you have such precision now in yes the way that you track your menstrual cycle and you can say exactly well this is what happened to me in that week so this is why my period or this is is like this or this is how I feel why I felt like this can you talk a little bit about what you used to track and how you you said trial and error so what were the what the were the kinds of things that you tried to get to that precision in tracking so um it almost exhibit a while back so I as in terms of a, a career worked um a lot in at pharma and I actually ended up training uh to be a sexual health advisor and I worked for sexual health for a long time in HIV and so through my work there um work I became super aware of your reproductive cycle as a woman and just more au fait with stuff that I had no idea and I think that's the key thing is that most of us know very little um, and then I went on to work with some of the big um, health tech giants who do tracking for fertility and got into working in fertility and IVF so that what was really great with that is I suddenly became aware of the science behind reproduction and also how we as women can have cues that we don't necessarily pick up on. So, you know, one of the things that I uh, really did was first, um, and that is a friend of mine many years ago who told me to do this. She goes, every day, write down, and this is before the apps, <laughs> write down how you feel and if you have any symptoms, just like bullet points, not enough sleep, slept well, what I've eaten, if I ate anything unusual, you know, that kind of jazz. 
and it took me about four months of doing that consistently to then start to pull the data and look at patterns and it's that I mean that was um that that was commitment <laughs> and that's kind of in my in my mid-20s I was also then a data geek so that helped <laughs> with <laughs> trying to, trying to like, find patterns and sequences and in terms of the trial error there were a lot of things I thought I saw as patterns that turned out over the years to not be and things that I put very li- little um onus on turned out to be for me personally in my body tend to be quite big factors uh, into you know how I am um and so you know I think that the key thing that has the hardest thing for me has been the food okay and eating well because that takes a level of discipline and uh, you you have to um I guess you, you have to be so cognizant and it needs to be a kind of practice that this that, when you're eating something or whatever you're doing to link this in your brain as a connection to how this can affect your menstrual cycle. And sometimes mm-hmm. I don't have that to be honest. And I regret it after I should have thought about that, you know, um, where I have um, got, got better is, you know, um, with the sleep um, really because, because that's linked to functionality as well. Yeah. Um, and also what was really helpful was I tracked a lot of my symptoms pre-period um for me to know when I was gonna come on and you know there's a lot of thick a lot of cues then that I now pay attention to that I would think oh I've just got this ache or uh, for instance I um know probably about three days before I'm about to come on I struggle with I know restless leg is like controversial but I I feel my legs I've got almost like not cramps but like I feel restless in my legs at night right that that is like so I know at that point that means that my period is coming so all these little whereas before I would pin that down to maybe exercise right but actually I I know the difference between a dom feeling of exercise and this kind of deep ache which is slightly different it's not painful it's more kind of uncomfortable um and then you know things like breast tenderness uh, kind of aches in your back but it took a long time of writing those down and not every month was the same that was a key thing for me so it took me quite a long time to work out what some months I get something and some, some months I don't they're mm. not I'm not actually very consistent if that makes sense with my symptoms I know some people are like when I've talked to friends they're like clockwork on they get this pain here and then this happens whereas for me it really much depends on how I've lived that month um and yeah so it's just getting getting really au fait with my body actually and being able to get to know my body and then sense what is happening um yeah so this journey of you getting comfortable and no more knowledgeable about your body what else has it changed for you I think it's made me much more hmm, really good question I think this could sound strange in general it's made me more conscientious as a person as a weird side effect because I think a lot of the time we live life on kind of autopilot Mm. you know we kind of go through and you know just live um but by trying to stop and be present and think about what's happening has spilled over 
kind of into other areas of my life weirdly I never thought that that would <laughs> be, be like a symptom but it has it's made me much more um cognizant um of how other people could be feeling I, that sounds strange but it really has made me think about you know being more in tune with my body in terms of you know sometimes I feel really flat some days like zilch nothing and, and that that can that's different phases of my period I can feel like that just absolute numbness um and I can't and I'm, I'm quite a highly motivated person and so that's a real drop for me in terms of my personality and I can't get out of it um but you know sometimes when I encounter people and I see them in that mood it makes me empathetic in a way because it's made me think about what they could be going through not necessarily menstrual cycle but in terms of our mental health and our emotional well-being mm-hmm. um, and I think that it's made me more hyper aware of the kind of mind-body connection yeah I think um as a, as a weird like life symptom of being more in tune with your menstrual cycle yeah you said that it makes you more empathetic um to what people are going through does it change the way that you interact with them yeah definitely I think um one of the things that has definitely come out of um even trying to manage my own periods and and trying to figure out what's happening is patience Mm. and exercising that and I'm somebody that wants the answer yesterday um, (laughs) I know some actually you can't do that because sometimes um you know if I have it something that feels a bit odd I, I don't know the reason straight away um and, and then actually that, that I, I would get very frustrated by that. And actually that is indicative of probably who I was as a person, as a personality. And that's made me, you know, really think about in the way that I interact with others to have that kind of patience and compassion that sometimes things are happening and people don't know why, or, mm. you know, people might ha- be having a reaction or an exchange with somebody that you find frustrating and to think more about why, am I getting this reaction? You know, what is stimulating this as opposed to being just immediately reactive? Yeah. I want to just go back to the tracking because yeah. I think that it's, it, it's something obviously that I encourage all of my clients to do. It's you get so much valuable information, information, data, whatever yeah, yeah. you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. That's the if someone's listening and they think, yeah, I know I need to do this, how, but how do I do it? What would your advice be based on your experience? Yeah, so first I would, I would say um, find a method that works for you in terms of that is the ease of tracking. So whether, um, because I think one of the things that with tracking I find important is that you need to be consistent otherwise you won't get that you're not going to see the date I say data but you're not going to see the patterns if you like miss three days within you know within a three-day period there can be such valuable information that happens in those like 72 hours um so you need to be consistent so if you're if you're glued to your um if you're glued to your phone get an app of some description or do it in your notes if you're a journaler write it down um but I I I find that when I was doing this years ago um I was doing this manually which took a lot of effort now there's loads of apps that allow you to just tick boxes you know for instance that 
they, they've taken up the arduous labor of it <laughs> so like you know you know take it and I would encourage people to do that um and in that way you just build that habit and and the key thing is just try and do it for a month yeah one month and that's to be honest it's enough sometimes for you to motivate you to do it further um but I think it just brings such valuable information so I would say find the way to track um I I I, um the one thing about tracking even though I'm a data geek is I think you need to track what is intuitive to you as opposed to trying to tick some boxes because actually when I first started the, the the best advice I got is just track what you feel and I know that sounds vague and annoying but that gave me the freedom to put down things that seemed innocuous that then turned out to be really important so you know you don't have to put how many hours sleep it doesn't have to be that prescriptive I think it's just doing it what works for you um if you just want to track you know your mood or you want to track you know biological physical symptoms great um and I think that that's super important to not be so rigid that you don't do it yeah. And it becomes to labour. Any data is good data in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I I just have this vision of you with this massive Excel spreadsheet. No, there was an Excel sheet. There actually was. Brilliant. That is that is brilliant. I, and you know, you and the, I think what what motivated me is because I had, if I hadn't had symptoms that really annoyed me. Or I found a bit of data. I wouldn't have had that motivation, I don't think. Mm. But because I wanted to really get to the the, the bottom of these headaches, um, you know, out came the Excel sheet. Yeah, with like pivot tables and <laughs> you know, correlating dots. And, you know, yeah. yeah. I want to shift gears and talk yeah. about your work and the company that you founded, Well Spoken Mark. Talk to us yeah. about why why you thought this was necessary and the steps that you're taking at the moment yeah sure so um as I kind of mentioned before my career was working in the kind of medical healthcare setting um I work with a lot of pharma companies um and NGOs and healthcare institutions um to uh, do work there in terms of improving people's health in specific disease areas I then became a consultant at a particular point in my career and um, I stumbled into working for someone that needed help with some consumer health stuff so this is the stuff that kind of comes out of the the really hard regs that comes around pharma and and medical stuff that you know it's kind of a bit more life and death and this was more in terms of just healthy living and um, when I kind of looked at the, the content people were producing I was really shocked at the standard because evidently when you have really hard legislation in place, when it comes to sharing information about, you know, prescription drugs, you have to be by the book because mm. there's no room for someone to misunderstand a dosing because the, because the consequences are so huge. Um, you know, you, your communication has to work for everybody. Everybody needs to understand precisely what you're saying. And what I found is because there wasn't that rigor, I, f- I felt in... Um, in the kind of more wellness consumer field, because actually the results and the outcomes aren't so serious, it seems, and that's what I would say, it doesn't seem like it's that serious, you know, on the outset. But what I 
really believe is that health is 360 and I really believe in preventative health and I think healthy living comes under that and our society is really focused on treatment rather than prevention and that reflects in how we treat information about prevention you know and and that we kind of it's very laissez-faire and so I saw that there was a lot of just crap (laughs) being (laughs) pointed out by brands and people on social media and it was just it was chaos and I thought you know we need to figure out a way to bring some of the rigor that we have in the medical field into this field because it's equally as important if you if you take on the wrong diet regime or you exercise incorrectly with poor form you can hurt yourself you know Mm -hmm. so it is important and so there was the spark of where well-spoken mark was founded so what we essentially we are is a kite mark and we work with brands to ensure that the content they're producing hits a certain credibility standard before it goes out to you and I in the in the consumer fit sphere and we worked with two universities um one in Barcelona and one in, Sh- in Sheffield um they've both got health informatics support departments which is um super that's a whole other world um and that looks at the way that we as humans now interact with health information especially online and um the way that consumer trust works and they might seem like really odd uh like buckets but actually um the way that we engage with health information our guard is down societally in a way that it's not when we're dealing about let's say money Hmm. so um I'll give you a kind of a classic example um I was did a focus group and a lady talked talk to me about she signed up for a you know a meal prep service that was being yeah. advertised on Instagram loved it she said she, was, she couldn't sort out her food she just wanted to end like hit her macros and all that kind of good jazz and she signed up via a promotion on Instagram she signed up um with some influencers code and it was mighty expensive obviously per month <laughs> you're talking like in the hundreds uh, in yeah. terms of like to do that she then said what she then realized is at the same time she was looking to lease a car and actually same amount of money per month but she was going into the fine print of that leasing contract she was looking out around at different vendors to see what she could get the best deal and her approach to spending her money in terms of a car was so different to the way that she literally clicked a link and paid hundreds of pounds a month via social media to improve her health as it were and that's a classic example of where we are as a society at the moment that that's the way that we tend to have low guards when it comes to health information which is why a lot of we absorb a lot of misinformation without Mm. um fact checking credit you know it looks glossy on instagram we just assume everything is above board and because of that and because our health literacy which is split into two parts our ability to understand health information and then make uh, an informed decision with that information as you know in the uk globally but in the uk specifically it's quite low Mm. even though we're quite a developed country if that makes sense economically um you would think that those two go hand in hand and they don't um what that means is that as a consumer base we don't have the skills yet and we and it's often we're not taught those skills whether it be in school or whatever to decipher good and bad health information we think it's really important then if you are a producer of that health information that you need to take that on board and you need to think about how do you make sure that your whoever's your audience doesn't misunderstand 
the information you're putting out and then doesn't do something with that information that you know then is detrimental um you know we have there was a real big move in terms of uh, clean eating a couple of years ago and then what you had is a real spike in orthorexia for instance yeah. which is you know being obsessive with healthy eating or you had that the, when people talk about mental health there's this kind of move the naturalist movement to like not taking any medication but actually if you have a serious mental health condition suddenly not taking your prescribed medication because you see kind of this move on Instagram is not ideal for you. And, you know, people are making health actions without checking with health professionals because mm. we have this kind of peer-to-peer learning culture in health. Actually, that's great, but there's some some negatives to that. Um, yeah. uh, what's really important for us in terms of working with wellness brands, with all that considered, is then thinking about when, we're, when you're communicating with your audience, you need to think about their health literacy rates, but also what impacts them. And our kind of next big thing that we're kind of engaging brands in is to think about health inequalities when it comes to different socioeconomic groups. And actually race plays a part in that. Um, and we've had a lot of talk about the lack of kind of diversity and wellness. And although that um, from a social perspective, that's not great in terms of to not represent parts of the community. It actually has health implications because, actually, you know, if you look at the data, um, health outcomes for black and minority people are much lower than white people in the UK. Um, and part of the reason for that, um, there was a real big move in the 90s and early 2000s that it was due to cultural and genetic factors i put in inverted commas um but what we now know is that racism and discrimination plays a part in in the way that um people can receive health information they seek help um all, it's all bundled into one big snowball and you know if you're if you're sharing health and wellness information it's important to think about every one of your in your audience not just you know people that are necessarily wealthy or high ed- highly educated or have more social mobility Mm. Um, and so our kind of next big thing is engaging wellness brands to sign a diversity charter um, which makes some commitments to improving diversity in the wellness industry which will have I hope better implications in terms of making the wellness industry more representative of the population but also actually on the content they produce bearing Mm. in mind those factors for their audience. I want to go back to what you were saying about health literacy and how in the UK you would assume it's high, but it's actually quite low. And you talked about this peer-to-peer learning um, culture around health. And what's really interesting is there's a lot of statistics that show that um, that amongst Black people, trust in doctors is actually quite low. And so how do you connect this idea of low trust in doctors um, with lack of health literacy, but yeah. also this peer-to-peer learning culture. Yeah, so I think, um, oh God, it's, a, it's big to unpick. <laughs> I think mean, the first thing, <laughs> you know, it's, it, uh, so there's multi-layers to it. So you're absolutely right. It's, that is a big ball of kind of like chaos because you have all those elements playing at one. I think it's to, for one is to really unpick why there's this low trust with uh, healthcare professionals. Often that's generationally passed on. I'll just I'll, I'll give you an example from my own family in terms of how that is positioned. Um, it actually does come from a place of personal anecdotal experience. Often um, that often if you, if you look at the, the the data in terms of people's experiences, what you'll find is they say they've had a very negative interaction with a healthcare professional. They have perceived that to be because of who they are 
and their skin colour. And they've had poor treatment or poor interactions because of that. And obviously, no one's going to go back to somewhere that doesn't engage you, interact with you well. So I think on that level, we need to um, ensure that healthcare professionals are proactively and very visibly making those changes to build that trust with those those communities. Um, and I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's live and kicking today. Even when we look at the Embrace report in terms of, uh, you know, women dying in childbirth, five, but five times more likely, likely if you're black. And then even with this COVID situation with, you know, BAM groups you know, dying disproportionately, there's a lot of work to be done there. And uh, I think one of the key things that healthcare professionals can do is they need to engage with community pillars mm. to have conversations, to, to bring them into the community, to be seen as a safe space. So where it comes into social peer-to-peer learning, what we have in the community, I think, is some brilliant networks in terms of people that are connected to each other, sharing information. And healthcare professionals need to tap in. And I think also the leaders of those networks or people that are influential within our kind of black community in terms of on social media you know who are kind of driving a lot of the conversation I think also need to have a it's a mental move rather than anything visual a move to actually not seeing themselves as influencers or just you know information sharers Mm. and see themselves as information providers and when you when you make that shift in your head there comes a level of rigor because now as a responsibility as a person who's sharing information um and you know that your sphere of influence is quite big and you know that people will take your information and run with it with that responsibility then we need to employ some of the the practices that we see in other institutions where you know there's there's liability so yeah. that means providing things like references um mm. moving in from sharing to education and it's mm. a really subtle shift it's not necessarily something that you need to do a song and dance about i think it's just the way that you communicate and focus on upskilling and improving someone's health literacy because what when we talk about health literacy particularly in wellness in general but also in wellness more niche in the black community what you'll see is people will recommend something and um because of groupthink in the way that we we kind of interact in a social setting people will have an understanding that, that this is healthy for me because of something they're not quite mm. clear when you ask them why is that healthy they just know that it is yeah and then they'll then do it but that's no health literacy because that means that you can't explain what why you're making those choices so we need to plug where we know those gaps are to make make sure that you communicate to i, I, I always say is the lowest denominator not the highest not the most educated person in your audience mm. the person that doesn't know anything and that's actually yeah. where you're you need to be based so I'm what I'm hoping that intent is it's, it's going to be a compound move as yeah. opposed to one thing with in the, like the black community but I think once we I think there's that kind of a growing acceptance now that and the science backs us that this myth that um and there are some things that are genetic in all race groups so not just black community you know you, you look at um, people of um, Chinese origin, there's some very specific 
disease um, pathologies they have there in, for instance, certain ethnic groups, that's genetic stuff. But we need to kind of move away as a community to think that everything is cultural or everything is food based. Mm. everything is diet based and once we kind of acknowledge that there are some socio-economic cultural aspects in play at why our health is outcomes are worse yeah. that helps us automatically do better yeah that makes sense yeah yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense you you mentioned going from an information sharer to an information provider and I think what's really interesting about that is the, the idea of referencing is really powerful, but there is a lot of there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that comes out of working with people and you see patterns. And sometimes I just want to talk a little bit about this because sometimes in the science-based community you see a lot of um, negative commentary around yeah. anecdotal evidence yeah. talk a bit a little bit about your opinion about that yeah so you know I think um I personally think anecdotal evidence has a huge part to play in um in terms of looking at data and, and clinical uh decision making I actually think because anecdotal evidence a, a certain level of anecdotal evidence is required for you to see a pattern for then for you to do a clinical study so actually it's the precursor to what people see as the most rigorous you know data-driven um, analysis but it, it has to come from somewhere you're not plucking it out of thin air mm. um so I think um there's there's a there's a a move and can I use COVID as an example um to talk about where this negative connotation of anecdotal evidence um has big health implications so one of the things that I, I really believe is that my, science moves faster and information moves faster than we could ever publish it. Hmm. So just because something's not published doesn't mean it hasn't hold truth. We just haven't had a, we haven't had eighteen months to run a study. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, <laughs> you know it, it takes a long time. You need funding all that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean there's truth, not truth in something. And uh, one of the real interesting interest again, sorry, going back into geek mode. One of the real interesting things for me in terms of looking at COVID was looking at how we got to where we were in terms of um, big spikes, and people were looking for hard data. And actually, if you look at some of the explanations from the way that the WHO and they're great, so it's not to criticise them. I think it's more to do with the culture um, when doctors were reporting. Um, incidents of these weird cases uh because it was only anecdotal it wasn't taken quite seriously enough until you hit a a, a, a number which was deemed to be important enough to take action now i think in terms of that having markers is super important i think when it comes to things like medication and things that you're ingesting or consuming because evidently there's safety you know associated with that so i think those that there's a real still there's a, a place for having very clear parameters before you make claims um around certain aspects of health that we have to have them otherwise we're going to get into people being quite ill so mm. So that's not to say that that's not the case. I think by not having a a positive view of anecdotal evidence, we actually rob ourselves sometimes from foresight and looking ahead at where things could be going because we're waiting for things to hit a marker when we we, we know it's happening. And I think 
I'll give you an example um, in terms of more the wellness field is one of the things that uh, is quite interesting and we, we don't have a lot of data on it but we know it as a trend um, is that in some meditation practices what we have seen is from kind of clinical kind of small studies is that for cer certain meditation practices for certain people with certain mental health conditions can actually exacerbate those conditions mm. as opposed to um, make things better now what has happened is because we've had a universal communication that meditation and mindfulness is brilliant for all that has been the kind of narrative anyone can do it you know I'm, I'm thinking about all the messaging that we've seen from the big wellness brands um we one we didn't have a, we didn't have in the western world so many people doing it en masse so we didn't have the data but you know when we did start to see some negative effects come out of, of very niche groups um this was an example of where actually people didn't wait for you know 10,000 cases of this for before issuing that advice and we took anecdotal evidence um quite seriously and then made policy change within for instance institutions in terms of thinking about people with certain mental health conditions so this mm. is where there is a role for anecdotal evidence mm. um what i what i always say to people in terms of especially when you're working in well-being where let's be honest because there's no funding pharma's not going to fund a well-being study mm. in, in terms of like <laughs> you know there's no product at the end of it let's be honest um you don't have the data because it doesn't exist who's going to fund it um what i always say to people is those markers are there for a reason because it's, it's a safety thing however it doesn't mean that you can't share so i just think what we need to do is just be clear to our audience that it is anecdotal evidence Hmm. Um, and that is the way I think we have a good middle ground where we can still share the experiences of people but we say look this is what we've seen as patterns with the people that we work with for instance um, this is not this is not indicative that this is a health claim that this will be for you but it is it's something to consider and I think it's about toning down the language all around health claims and absolutes Mm. So what might work for someone might not work for you. And then positioning things that do, especially based on anecdotal evidence, is where we just need to be careful. But there is a place. Yeah. 100%. And I think we need to, um, once we accept that science is, I know it sounds strange, science is not all-knowing. Mm. And science shifts. Yeah. What, my, what was in, you know, I was a microbiologist by trade. It was funny, I was looking at my old textbooks from 10, 12 years ago. They're outdated. I can't, we, I can't even give that to anybody that's studying <laughs> now because the information there is, we know more. And actually, mm. it's, not, it's not relevant anymore. So I think if you kind of see science as evolving and as, a, as an evolving feat, yeah. um, anecdotal evidence has a role to play. I want to talk about you, the diversity and wellness project that yeah. you're doing. So it's a it's a really important topic there's a lot of conversation about race and black lives matter right now when will this be out um and how can people um connect with it so the charter goes live on june the 15th monday june the 15th um and you know um it's super important so we know that you know within the wellness field and you and i have spoken about this before it's um there is a certain aesthetic and there is a certain kind of elitism that is class-based also. Mm. That's important to say it's class and then race kind of comes under that. And you have a, it, 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 in a place that's supposed to be very inclusive, actually has become not very inclusive. 
So to really challenge that and to challenge the people that I, I would say that run the scene because they've got the money behind it, they're the powerhouse of the brands. What we're calling for is brands to commit to five pledges. Now, what they cover is, um, you know, corporate diversity, um, making sure that they're internally hiring people that are from different ethnic backgrounds to widen the perspective, especially within health, education. So when you get the staff, actually educating them on what we talked about in terms of health inequality and where race plays a role and how you have to adapt your marketing strategies as a company. Um, fair pay, making sure that people are paid equally. That's a problem in the scene, unfortunately. Um, access, let me get it up. I missed one, sorry. You might have to edit this. I forgot my five pledges. Um, representation, so making sure that people are represented in and seeing themselves in the scene. And then the, the last one is all around access. So trying to make things more accessible for more people. You know, when, when you have high price points, actually this is done very well in other fields. And it's not necessarily that you always have a reduced class rate, for instance, but there's other strategies you could do, pay it forwards. There's lots of ways that, you know, wellness brands can you know, even if they are at a high price point, think about supporting communities and low-income communities that can't get in, um, all that kind of stuff. So what we're asking brands to do is to sign up to these pledges and then do the work to actually, you know, implement those in their companies. So the way that it will work with us is if you sign up as a brand, um, we will do an audit of where does diversity sit in this company at the moment? What does it look like? Um, and then we will work with them to basically put a plan together that works for them, that's authentic, that's organic, that's not just, um, you know, optical allyship, that's just not performative, mm. but that actually, you know, has meaningful change. And a lot of that probably we won't see, if that makes yeah. sense. You know, it's, it's internal changes. Uh, and then we will do annual reviews of how those changes are taking place. Because, you know, it's quite a big, I think it's quite a big structural shift. So I think at the same time, we need to give companies time to make those changes in a really authentic way and not in a knee jerk way. Mm. Uh, Because actually you end up getting things wrong when you do things in a reactionary state rather than a really considered state. Um, And so what we're asking people to do when we launch is in the link in our bio what we will have is we're gonna we're hoping to do a pincer movement and i think this is what's going to like bring about change we will have um the charter which we're, we're directly approaching brands to sign up to but then we're going to have an email template that people in the community people in wellness can copy and paste and send to their favorite wellness brands to say have you signed up to this charter um we had 150 over 150 now as of this morning uh wellness uh black and minority wellness practitioners or professionals in the working in the field sign up and give their support to this charter and so for me it's really it's of the people and it's for the people if that makes sense um that they are this is what we are as a community are calling for and then you know if we mobilize both ends it puts the right amount of pressure I think yeah. on brands that this is something that consumers want they want this transparency and they want things to change when it comes to racial equality and for all of you who are listening, we'll put all of the links to the charter and the email template in the show notes. Um, if listeners take one thing away from all of the brilliant things that you've shared with us today, what would you want that to be? So I, I would say to everybody, think of your health literacy as a core skill. 
of yours and actually um you we all have as we've gotten older and grown up come out of school had to learn about financial literacy had to learn how to like interpersonal skills how to maneuver through the world and often just the way that society has been we've neglected our health literacy and my kind of real um passion project is to get people to think about that as a core skill of theirs in terms of if you're especially if you're very engaged with your health it's really important that you make informed decisions about your health um, that are right for you as a person um, and you know we see lots of trends and cool things that go on in, in health and wellness um, but the, the key is deciphering is that right for you and what's going to make your life better um, and your health better so I would say you know look into health, your health literacy um, we're shortly going to have a a test and I'll send you the link in the bio of how you can test your health literacy um, so you know you can see where you are and it gives you a, a good gauge on how, how you can um, think about that so yeah that was what I would say health literacy all the way Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Sarah. Can you just uh, tell the listeners the the link to the, the URL of Well Spoken Mark? Yeah, absolutely. So we our website is uh, www.wearewellspoken.com and on all social channels, our, uh, our name is Well Spoken Mark. So it's the same across all platforms. And yeah, you'll, you'll find us most live and kicking on Instagram. Brilliant. Thank you so much. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.